What did you want most last week? Um, Did you want warmer weather? Uh, Did you want, in the words of the film, What About Bob, a vacation from your problems? Did you want a, a lighter workload? Less conflict in your home or office? What did you want most last week? What do you want most this week? Have you thought about making wisdom? God's wisdom, one of your desires. Has it uh, so become one of your desires that it has become your prayer? Well, this morning in 1 Kings chapters 3 and 4, we see King Solomon seeking wisdom, judging with wisdom and blessing others because of his wisdom given by God. In the course of our study this morning, pray that the Lord be pleased to give us a greater understanding of wisdom. And a greater desire for wisdom. Pray that we would come to see that that God's wisdom is manifested in this world, in His law, and ultimately in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to be looking at chapters 3 and 4. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 282, I believe. 282. And while you're turning there, let's just remember the message of the book of Kings. Uh, and, and where we are in this historical narrative. The, the message of the book of Kings is that despite Israel's sin, God's king will come. Though the book describes a, a descent from the golden age and era of Solomon's reign into the grueling era and age of the exile, though the prophets of God, Elijah and Elisha, expose Israel's disobedience to the law of God, The book still concludes, in in 2 Kings, it concludes with a king and a son of David being released from prison. And this gives us hope that God will yet fulfill his promises to David to send a son to sit on the throne of David. The first two chapters of 1 Kings were concerned with the question we saw last week of, of who will reign. As King David ages and begins to fade, two sons of David, they, they come into view and they vie for the throne. In the end, the promised son, Solomon, the promised son, ascends to the throne. And before David died, he charged Solomon to to walk in the ways of the Lord, to keep God's law and to keep rebels accountable, to live righteously and to reign righteously, or we could say to rule in wisdom. And Solomon has begun to do just that. He has dealt with four snakes in the kingdom, exiling one rebel and putting the other three to death. In 1 Kings chapters 3 and 4, we continue to see Solomon's reign unfold. According to the last verse of chapter 2, if you take a look at the last verse of chapter 2, you'll see that Solomon's kingdom has been established. But what kind of king will Solomon be? These next two chapters begin to answer that question. What, What kind of king is Solomon going to be? And really, much to our chagrin, the answer is not so straightforward. We we like the ease of declarative statements such as he was a good king or he was a bad king. But the text will not permit such easy or clear-cut answers. Honestly, some red flags emerge. And still, on the whole, the picture that we get of Solomon's reign is mostly a good picture, mostly positive. In these chapters, we see that Solomon is a king who seeks wisdom. He is a king who judges with wisdom and he is a king who blesses other through wisdom. Those three points are going to form the outline of the rest 
of the sermon. A king who seeks wisdom, a king who judges with wisdom, and a king who blesses through wisdom. Let's begin by considering our first point, a king who seeks wisdom. And as we consider this, let's read 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Follow along there. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places. However, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. He only sacrificed and made offerings at the high places, and the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for a multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind. Govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Well, these verses begin with a wife, verse 1. They turn immediately to worship, verses 2 to 4. Pro they progress with a prayer for wisdom in verses 5 to 9. Announce Yahweh's promise to answer that prayer for wisdom in verses 10 to 14. And conclude again with worship there in verse 15. Though different issues emerge in these verses, Solomon's pursuit of wisdom is the backbone of them all. It's the backbone that ties these verses together. In some respects, even Solomon's seeking after a wife there in verse 1 can be viewed through the lens of seeking after wisdom. Just consider what Solomon himself wrote in Proverbs 18.22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. 
Or consider what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 31, verse 10. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. Really, the woman of Proverbs 31 is in some ways the embodiment of all of the wisdom that preceded, that was enumerated in the previous 30 chapters of the book of Proverbs. The woman of verse 1, though, you see there she's an Egyptian. And this would make any Hebrew reader nervous. Egypt was often viewed with suspicion in the ancient Hebrew mind. After all, Egypt held Israel in slavery for far too long. Not only that, but according to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, that the people of Israel were explicitly instructed not to intermarry with foreign nations. Before those faint fears are kind of allowed to settle in, the author of Kings tells us in verse 3 that Solomon, that he loved the Lord, that he loved Yahweh. And that he walked in the statutes of his father David. And that he only sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. In other words, as we, as we turn from Solomon's bride, we turn to Solomon's worship. Worship is the beginning of wisdom. Or as Solomon would put it in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. In this worship, in his reverence for God, Solomon is humbly recognizing that he is far below the high and exalted God. Have you recognized your place before the throne of God? Wisdom begins with us at God's feet on our faces. If you want wisdom, you begin with humble worship as Solomon does. As soon as we're comforted, relieved that Solomon's not going after foreign gods, but worshiping the one true God, we're confused again because these verses, they, they mention that Solomon went to the high places, went really to the great high place to worship. Now, the, the author, he kind of caveats this or nuances it and explains that really this is the only place available to worship. But we also have to remember that the high places are very often mentioned in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Bible, as places where false worship occurs. So we're set a little on edge of our seat here as we read this. Here it's important to remember the larger goal of the book of Kings that the author even is himself showing us here that, that a house for God needs to be built. David wanted to build a house for Yahweh, but that he was his son, that his son would build God's house. Here the author of Kings is he's revealing for us the, the need for God's house to be built. God's house needs to be built because people are worshiping at high places. And they need to be worshiping really at one permanent place, the temple. And this is the question. Is Solomon the right man for that job? What does he want most? Does he want his own personal glory? Or does he want God to be worshipped and to receive glory? Well, given the generosity of Solomon's burnt offerings, it seems as though Solomon really does want the Lord's glory most. We may assume that the Lord accepts Solomon's worship, even, even at the high place. For he appears to him in a dream at the very place where he was worshipping. Not only that, but in verse 5, do you see verse 5 there? God invites Solomon to ask for gifts from above. This is a clear indication that Yahweh was pleased with Solomon's worship. This is also a generous invitation from God. When you think of God, when you think of God, do you think of Him as generous? Friends, brothers and sisters, He really is generous. And if we think of Him as anything less than being wonderfully generous to us, we belittle his very gracious character. Here is our God, condescending to a fallen, a fallen and fallible human. 
inviting him to make his requests known. Solomon doesn't deserve this invitation, and neither do we. But we've been given it. Though what we're looking at here is a a unique event in redemptive history. In principle, we too may bring our requests to God. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, the Apostle Paul exhorts us, saying, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is a wonderfully kind and generous invitation from our Heavenly Father. And we should take him up on his invitation to make a request known to him each and every day. In verses 5 to 9, we learn that what Solomon is seeking is wisdom. In the words of James chapter 1, verse 5, Solomon confesses that he lacks wisdom. And he asks God for it. And God gives it generously without reproach. Our brother Chris Alberts is going to help us to carefully think about that passage in the book of James later tonight. But for now, Solomon's plea in verse 9, look at it. Notice how he describes himself. Verse 9 again. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? You see there, Solomon identifies himself as a servant. Do we think of ourselves as servants of God? Or do we think of God God as our servant? Uh, This will shape how we approach God in prayer, won't it? Solomon's approach to God is, is infused with humility. And this teaches us about how we can and should approach our good and generous God in prayer. Solomon asks for an understanding mind, you see there, to to govern God's people. He asks for an understanding mind so that he might serve God's people. He's a servant of God and he's a servant of God's people. The request for an understanding mind might, might be literally translated as a listening heart. Do our hearts seek to listen to God and His Word? If we're after an understanding mind, then we need to have hearts that listen to God's Word. This is a good prayer for us as individual believers, right, to request and pray for wisdom. But it's also a good request for elders in Christ's church. So, brothers, let's pray for God to give us listening hearts, understanding minds, and wisdom so that we might be a blessing to God's people. Notice, too, that Solomon asks for understanding so that he may discern between good and evil. I wonder, did you know that that phrase appears in the Garden of Eden? There, Adam and Eve were told that God gets to decide. He gets to discern between what is good and evil. And their responsibility, Adam and Eve's responsibility, was to agree with God's vision, to side with God, His vision of what was good and evil. And here Solomon is asking for the grace to discern what God declares is good and evil and to side with God. He, he doesn't want to discern between good and evil in his own strength and sight, but in God's strength and sight. We need this humility and this restraint because too often in sin, in our sin, we tell God what is good and evil instead of listening to His divinely inspired revelation. This request from Solomon tells us that a wise king seeks God's discernment, God's wisdom, His understanding of what is good and evil. It should tell us something else as well. That this discernment doesn't come easy, doesn't necessarily come natural to us. In other words, good and evil are not always readily apparent to us. Sin has darkened our minds, and naturally we don't see with perfect clarity. 
Even when the Spirit has opened our eyes to see the truth and goodness of God's law, we still struggle with indwelling sin. We need God's vision of things. We need His perspective on what is good and evil, and He's the only one who can give it. When faced with a a moral quandary, look to God's law. He has clearly revealed His will. And ask God to give you discernment between what is good and evil according to His sight. And then there's that final clause of verse 9. For who is able to govern this your great people? This reveals something of Solomon's heart toward God's people. He has a humble heart toward God, and he has a helpful heart toward God's people. Solomon esteems God's people. They're they're a great people. He loves them and desires their blessing and benefit. He is more concerned for their welfare than his wealth. He has a heart that considers others better, more significant, more important than himself. He, like Jesus, is willing to take the lower place so that God's people might be lifted up. Are you willing to take the lower place? Children, youth, young adults, are you willing to take the lower place? Are you willing to take the lower place and lift up and serve your brothers or sisters? Are you willing to give things up so that they might be blessed? That's what Jesus has done. He gave up his throne in heaven so that we might be lifted up from death. Praise God for the Lord Jesus. This request from Solomon, this setting God's people and their welfare above his wealth, this is part of what pleases God. Did you notice that there? And this is also why God will exalt him. Did you notice what God was pleased with in Solomon's prayer? Verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. God promised to give Solomon wisdom. Verses 11 and 12. And he also promised to give him wealth. Here's verse 13. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. In response to Solomon's humble plea for wisdom, God promised to answer his request and to reward him with wealth. He promised to exalt the humble. Christian, do you want to offer a prayer that pleases the Lord? Ask for wisdom so that you might be a blessing to others. And you will be offering a prayer that pleases the Lord. The Lord promises here, promises Solomon that he will exalt the humble. And this is the path that Jesus walked. The path of humility, of concern for God's righteousness, of upholding what God declares is good, of despising what God declares is evil, and in placing the life of his people above his own, even to the point of death. This is why we love Jesus. It's why we worship Jesus. It's why we rejoice in Him as our King. And it's why we seek the wisdom that is found in Him. These verses you'll see there conclude in verse 15 with Solomon making his way to Jerusalem, to the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to worship. This is the place where worship is properly given to God. Wisdom and the fear of the Lord are being evidenced in Solomon's life. And we see this too, that he he cultivates community by blessing his servants and inviting them to rejoice and feast with Him. The benefits of wisdom are are beginning to flow out and expand to those under Solomon's command. And in verses 16 to 28, we see that one of the primary benefits of wisdom is to do justice. To do justice. So let's turn and consider our second point, a king who judges with wisdom. A king who judges with wisdom. And as we do, read 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 to 28. 
Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two. And give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, Oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Verses 16 to 22 there announce the case that Solomon is to judge. Verses 23 to 27 use, to use the language of verse 9, announce how Solomon discerned between good and evil. And then verse 28 expresses the conclusion of the matter. That God had given Solomon wisdom to judge and administer justice. To be honest, it's a, it's a rather straightforward section, isn't it? The purpose is plain. To show how Yahweh endowed Solomon with wisdom to execute justice. So, why not just give us verse 28? The reason is that the author wants to show us just how generous God was in giving his wisdom to Solomon. Think about it. The details of this case show that it's an exceedingly difficult case. Here are two women, one who has given birth, uh, who have given birth to sons just three days apart. Right now, if one woman had given birth one month and one woman had given birth another month, then maybe Solomon could discern and decide the case by the size of the child and the mother's recovery. If one baby had been born a boy and the other a girl then Solomon could have easily discerned and decided the case. If there were other witnesses in the house, then Solomon could have called them in in order to discern and decide the case. If one woman was less desperate than the other, then perhaps Solomon could have discerned and decided the case. But Solomon has none of those details. Not only that, but in the, the Hebrew, uh, the, the women are virtually un, un, indistinguishable. They're unidentifiable. While our English translators have kind of demargated who was the first woman and who was the other woman? The Hebrew actually leaves things cloudy. A woman says this, a woman says that, a woman does this, a woman does that. And for the first hearer of this text, it would have been difficult to discern who was who and who said what and who belonged to what. 
So same house, same birth month, three days apart actually. Uh, Both children were sons. There were no witnesses. And the women gave the same desperate petition and plea. Solomon, at a human level, has nothing with which to decide this case. Solomon needs divine discernment to judge this case. He needs God to decide for him who is lying and who is telling the truth, who is good and who is evil. He needs God to to cut through the, the cloudiness of this situation. And so he asks for a sword. At one level... Uh, This should not surprise us. For Solomon has dealt with past difficulties with the sword. Remember chapter 2? He put three men to death and exiled a fourth. The sword had been Solomon's instrument of judgment in the past. And now he takes it up again. And Solomon seems to understand that this threat of the sword will kind of smoke out the the, the son's true mother. And that it does. You'd be hard-pressed to put it better than Dale Ralph Davis when he wrote... This order so stirred and alarmed the mother love of the real mother that she insisted the other woman be given the living baby. If she cannot obtain justice, at least she will secure the life of her child. This outburst was Solomon's clue that he had detected the mother. See, the the reaction of this mother is very much actually like the reaction of Bathsheba earlier when the life of her son was threatened in chapter 1. Like Bathsheba, the, the true mother moves swiftly to secure her son's safety. What are we to make of Solomon's threatening the life of a child? Our gut reaction is that this is hardly any way to judge. To endanger the life of a child, to resolve a dispute between two women. Now, I don't think we should dismiss this gut reaction. Our God has placed that gut reaction within us because we know We intuitively know that the child is precious. Our God has written on our hearts and on his creation some basic natural realities. Go and watch any of those undercover videos in abortion clinics and you will find staff constantly slipping, referring to the baby as a baby, referring to the boy as a boy, and to the girl as a girl. Try as they might, they cannot escape the truth that is actually before their eyes. These babies are human and deserving of life and protection. And as we read this text, we intuitively know that that child is made in the image of God and should not be threatened with a sword. That child should not be threatened with punishment, but promised protection. I don't think we can resolve some of the tensions we feel as we read this text But we can know and believe that justice was served and that God's wisdom was revealed in Solomon's judgment. Ultimately, too, we see that God gave that baby protection. As we continue to stare at Solomon's life, it's striking to consider that he has to discern between two women, one good and one evil. Think about, think again about the book of Proverbs, that book of wisdom that Solomon himself wrote. Do you remember how wisdom and foolishness are personified in that book? Wisdom is personified as lady wisdom. And folly is lady folly. She's a prostitute. Proverbs is played out in this display of Solomon's wisdom. Wisdom which requires choosing. And it's not always easy to choose. Wisdom is the discernment and the the discrimination between good and evil. As Sinclair Ferguson defines it, 
wisdom is the ability to make discriminating judgments, to distinguish between and recognize the moral implications of different situations and courses of action. This is something we all need and all need to pray for. That's how we get wisdom. We pray for it. We ask God for it. And we read God's word where he has deposited his wisdom. We should read his word so much that it's ringing in our ears when we're engaging the ethical issues of our day. The good news that Solomon discerned, the the good that Solomon discerned and sought to see in this situation was the real love that a mother has for her child. And the evil that Solomon sought to see in this situation was was multiform. The theft of another human. That's what happened when that woman took the baby. The lack of love for a friend. The anger at God's providence for the death of a child. Solomon not only saw it, but he pursued a course of action which would confront and correct it. This took faith-filled courage. Wisdom is not merely knowing, discerning, or deciding the difference between good and evil. It's also doing something about it. As Solomon here displayed the wisdom of God, he stood as a type of the wisdom of the invisible God that was to come in the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus discerned the hearts of men as he interacted and engaged with them, walked this earth. Isaiah chapter 11, it promises that a Messiah, king from David's line, would come. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, we're told this about the Messiah, the coming king. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus, he displayed this in the whole of his life. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus displayed wisdom and righteousness as he judged between the temptations of the evil one and faithfulness to God's word. Jesus displayed wisdom and righteousness in the synagogue in Luke chapter 13, where he had to choose between honoring the Pharisees and healing a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. Verse 28 makes plain that Solomon displayed immense wisdom and that the whole kingdom began to recognize and see that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. That verse should lead us to ask, do we see this in Jesus? Are we wise? Have we discerned between good and evil, between wisdom and folly? Have you chosen what the world thinks is folly and yet what God has revealed is wise? This is why we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31, earlier in the service. There Paul said that the cross to the world is folly, but it's God's wisdom. He's revealed to us how to discern, how we should think about the cross. The cross was the world's evil, but it was God's eternal good for those who believe. In the cross we see that Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so, friend, if you're you're here this morning, you're not a believer or a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to enter into the wisdom of God and to embrace the wisdom of God. Enter into faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to entrust yourself to Him and to trust Him. You see, the truth is that we've all sinned against God. We've all decided for ourselves what is good and what is evil. We've all decided to live according to our own rules and laws and wisdom. While God has called us to live according to His rules and laws and wisdom, He made us and He knows what's best for us. Because of our sin, because of our taking God's throne, we all deserve to face His just judgment forever in hell. 
But the good news of the Bible is that God has sent us wisdom. He has sent His wisdom. God sent His one and only most beloved Son to live His wisdom, to die to display His wisdom, and after three days to be raised from the grave to show His power and His wisdom. Friend, turn from your sin, from living in your own wisdom, and live in the wisdom of God by placing your trust in Jesus Christ. And if you want to know more about what it means to live and love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, then please do speak with a Christian friend that you came with here this morning. Speak with a family member you came with here this morning. Find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you more about how Jesus is the wisdom of God for us. Solomon, he was a king who sought after wisdom. He was a king who judged with wisdom. And in chapter 4, we see that he is a king who blessed others through wisdom. So let's turn then and consider our third point. A king who blesses others through wisdom. As your eyes turn to chapter 4, you probably notice that there are a lot of names that are difficult to pronounce. And let's be honest, when we come to passages like these in the scriptures, we're, we're reading and we, we may become a little discouraged, disheartened, and we've got to slog through this list of names. Not every part of the Bible is easy to read. But though we can be honest about its difficulty, we also need to be honest that the problem, the problem is not the scriptures. The problem is us and how we're approaching them. God has this in His Word for a reason. He is honored and glorified by this in His Word. It not only reveals Solomon's wisdom, but it also reveals God's wisdom and God's faithfulness. These first 19 verses of chapter 4 reveal the wisdom that God has given to Solomon because Solomon orders his kingdom. He, he sets up administrative offices, officers, he disperses the rule of the land between trustworthy men rather than foolishly taking it all upon himself. It's too much for one man. Still, these verses also show us the wisdom and faithfulness of God. Remember in chapter 3, God promised that because Solomon sought first the kingdom of God, that he would not only give him wisdom, but that he would also give him wealth. Look at how faithful God is to keeping his promises. Look how generous God is too. Solomon had high officials under his rule. Priests, commanders, officers, friends, a palace, a manager of laborers, and officers who provide food each month. That assumes a lot of food has to be provided if you've got to divide it up between 12 guys and their farms. And we'll see just how much it is in a moment when we come to verses 22 and 23. But don't forget that these 12 officers were representatives of actually the extent of Solomon's reign. What we're seeing here is God's promises to Abraham of giving a people a land flowing with milk and honey have come true. Through God's gift of wisdom to Solomon, the people of God are being blessed. And see if you can catch a glimpse of that as we read verses 28, 20 to 28. Begin there in verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and they drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal. 
keep in mind this is one day, here we go, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle. We're still, this is one day. 20 uh, pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region of the west of the Euphrates, from Tipa to Gaza, over all the kings of the west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon. And for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month, let nothing be lacking, barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duties. There's duty. Verse 20 tells us that the people of Israel under Solomon's rule were fat and happy and many. And that phrase, as many as the sand by the sea, it again picks up God's promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, where he promised Abraham that he would multiply his offspring as many as the stars in heaven as the sand on the seashore. And the focus on the land there in verse 24 also reveals that God is keeping His promises in the words of Graham Goldsworthy and Vaughn Roberts to establish His people in His place under His rule. Verse 24 is a kind of fulfillment of what God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 8. On the day, reading verse, Genesis 15, verse 8, on the day that the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. That's the land that Solomon's presented as having here, isn't it? Through Solomon, the kingdom of God is expanding just as God promised and just as Adam was supposed to do. The language of having dominion, you see there, of having dominion is a deliberate echo of the dominion that God gave to the first man and the first woman in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. As Solomon wisely discerns and judges and administers God's kingdom in accordance with the principles of God's law, God's people are blessed. Not only are God's people blessed, but so are the nations that surround Solomon. The nations, you'll notice in verse 21, begin to bring tribute to and serve Solomon, a lot like the nations bring tribute to and serve Jesus today. We are seeing that Solomon is, is stepping into the mold that Adam was to fill out. And as readers of the wider text of Scripture, we begin to wonder with all of this righteous wisdom and blessing and expansion of God's kingdom, is this the promised son of David? Is this the promised son of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? In due time, the writer will reveal that Solomon is not that son. And yet, part of the purpose of this passage is to show us that if a good king like Solomon blesses God's people through wisdom, then how much more will God's coming, God's perfect king, Jesus, how much more will Jesus bless God's people through wisdom? Solomon rules in wisdom and blesses God's people. And in the words that close the chapter, we also learn that Solomon thinks and speaks wisdom and so blesses God's people. As we read verses 29 to 34, notice the emphasis on Solomon's mind and on his mouth. Verse 29, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure. 
and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite and Haman, Calcol and Darda, the sons of Malho. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Verse 20 is, uh, verse 29 is, is fascinating. Solomon has breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. Remember the, the first man was to exercise dominion over the whole creation. And to that end, he would have needed to have a vast and expansive wisdom concerning God's creation. And here we're told that Solomon, God is giving Solomon such a vast and expansive wisdom concerning God's creation. Solomon's wisdom is mentioned seven times in verses 29 to 31. And this speaks of the, the wholeness, of the, the totality of Solomon's wisdom. Verses 32 to 34 then turn, uh, turn to focus on the wisdom coming out of Solomon's mouth. Just as God gave wisdom to Solomon concerning all of creation, so God spoke, so Solomon spoke God's wisdom concerning all of creation. And this last verse in the chapter in particular announces that it is a blessing not just to Israel, but to the nations of the earth. This has to remind us of Jesus. But herein lies the difference between Jesus and Solomon. God gave Solomon wisdom, verse 29. Jesus is God's wisdom, 1 Corinthians 1, 24. Still, what does this have to do with us as disciples of Jesus? This is what we need to think about as we conclude. If Jesus is God's wisdom, then just as Solomon sought wisdom, so we ought to seek Jesus. We ought to seek after the wisdom of God. We ought to seek after Jesus each and every day by going to God in prayer and pleading with God for wisdom to know Christ more. We ought to prayerfully go to the scriptures every day and ask God to pour out his wisdom as we read. He's the one who gives it. If Jesus is a king who, like Solomon, will judge with wisdom, and he will, then we ought to be a people who seek to make judgments to discern between good and evil. We ought to be a thoughtful people, a people slow to act and quick to deliberate, people who are less worried about a fast response and more worried about a faithful response. We don't have to have hot takes or make snap judgments. We can wait and watch and pray. We don't have to tweet. We can eat. We can chew on the issue before us. We can be a people who puzzle over the purpose of things. Why did God make that that way? What does he intend to do there? We can, we can taste the issues and chew on them and meditate on them and search God's word. See if these are, are good for us to consume. And if they are to swallow them, 
But if not, to spit them out. We need to be a slow people, a thoughtful people, a considerate people. If Jesus is a king who, like Solomon, blesses the nations through his wisdom, then we as his followers ought to share his wisdom with others and bless the nations. We we ought to share the wisdom of God's word with others. Brothers and sisters, let's bring God's word to bear on our ordinary conversations. Whether speaking with our children or family or friends or co-workers, when God's word comes to our minds in a conversation, speak up and say, you know, that reminds me of something that I read in the Bible. And then share God's word with joy and confidence in the Lord. Share God's wisdom with the world. Share God's wisdom and bless the nations. The cross is the wisdom of God. And we proclaim God's wisdom as we celebrate this meal that's before us right now. Here, we are going to proclaim God's wisdom to one another and to the world. This is the chief way that we may bless the nations, by proclaiming Jesus Christ. So let's let's prepare our hearts for that proclamation now through prayer and song. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.